You are now tuned in to the Decoding Success Podcast, where we reveal game-changing habits, formulas, and routines from the world's most successful individuals to help you think and live larger. What is going on? You are tuned into the Decoding Success Podcast, and you are rocking with your host, Matt Labrie. With all of the madness going on in this world, from this virus to politics, so on and so forth, we here at Decoding Success have made a promise to bring you nothing but positivity, to make sure we're taking your mind off that, to still helping you and aiding in your pursuit of greatness. So today, to do so... We are bringing to you one of the world's most successful entrepreneurs of our time, Jim McKelvey, who is a serial entrepreneur, inventor, philanthropist, artist, and author of the innovation stack, building an unbeatable business one crazy idea at a time. Now, many of you are going to know him from being the co-founder of Square. On top of being the co-founder of Square, he served as the chairman of its board until 2010 and still serves on the board today. In 2011, his iconic card reader design was inducted into the Museum of Modern Art. Now, Jim founded Invisibly, an ambitious project to rewire the economics of online content in 2016, and currently he is a deputy chair of the St. Louis Federal Reserve, and I promise you he's bringing a whole lot of insight and value to this show, this episode today, so stay tuned. But this would not be possible without our partners over at Acadium who are providing remote marketing interns for all of those that are pursuing their passion projects or pursuing business. Or hey, maybe you are a C-suite executive in a corporation and you're just looking to grow your team. Acadium is helping everyone do that at an effective and affordable rate. You've heard me say it once. You'll hear me say it again. I'm continuously using their services here at 1B Branding, our branding agency in New York City. We even started using them for our podcast decoding success. So if you are looking for help in regards to social media, in regards to paid ads, or maybe even your website, anything in between, anything marketing related, I highly suggest you go over to Acadium. You could simply go to the show notes of this episode, click the link, check them out, see what they have to offer and identify how they could be of value to you. But now without further ado, we bring to you our guest of the day, Jim McKelvey. Jim, I got to kick this off by expressing my gratitude toward you for hopping on here. I know you're going to bring a ton of value to the show. So thank you for joining us. Hey, thanks, Matt. This is going to be fun. Let's do it. So this is how we kick off the show. First question for you. I need to know, how do you personally define success? <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> uh, the ability to sleep well at night. Um, <laughs> so um, I like, uh, you, you know, look, um, I, I had some I had some numeric metrics as I was growing up, you know, dollars and uh, you know things like that, and I've I've discarded all that. Um, the way I just define success is: Am I generally happier? Um, and and I'll tell you I'll tell you the moment it happened. I can tell you the day it happened for me. Okay. Um, so I was I was driving to my glass dude. This was about fifteen years ago. I probably. Yeah, it was about 15 years ago, okay? So way before Square, way before any of this, you know, IPO and all that other crap. Um, I was driving to my studio and there was a radio contest and the radio announcer was giving away $10,000. And he said, just think how $10,000 would change your life. And I thought about it and I realized that if somebody pulled me over and handed me $10,000, you know, in a suitcase and said, here, it's yours. Like it wouldn't change where I had lunch. Like it wouldn't change anything. And, and then I thought about it and I thought, how much money 
would it take to change my life? Because I was driving in to my glass studio, doing good. I'm about, I was about to spend an afternoon doing something I loved with people that I really loved uh, in a city that I loved uh, with friends in, at night that were dear to me. And, and I thought, shit. I'm sorry. Can we, can we cuss on your podcast? I don't, a hundred percent. Yes. By oh, all thanks. means. I'm sorry. Man. <laughs> well, bleep that out of you. But I was like, I was like, Oh my God, I'm rich, but I wasn't wealthy. Like I didn't have a lot of money in the bank. It was just that money didn't matter. Like I, so I, I did this thought experiment and I said, how much more money would it take for me to change anything in my life? And I came up with this absurd amount of money. And the only thing that it would change would be instead of flying a propeller plane, which I had, I would fly a turboprop plane, which was kind of cool. Like a turboprop <laughs> is, it's a little better and they can pressurize and they're, they're a little safer. And I had a little, I had a little airplane. Um, I bought a, I bought an airplane with money I made in the glass studio. Like it was a cheap old airplane, but I, I was flying around. I had my own airplane, you know, great friends, great. I, everything was great. And, and money didn't matter. I mean, I won't say it didn't matter, but I said like, it didn't change anything. So, right. I mean, here I sit post IPO with square. I live in the same city. I have the same friends. I, I still go into the glass studio. I still make work. Um, I still hang out with the same people. Now I get a, like now I'm on the federal reserve. So, okay. That's kind of cool. I probably wouldn't have invited me on fed, but that's, that to me is success to me. To me, success is when nothing's going to change. Like even if you had the power to change it, you wouldn't that to me. Right. Is it right? Yeah, that's powerful, Jim. And I definitely appreciate the transparency, but you know, people that are listening to this may want to challenge that and say, Jim, you have a shit ton of money at this point, you know, and I'm sure you've been able to accumulate wealth over the course of your experiences and things of that nature. But you know, for someone listening that is not in that same position, they might say, well, uh, maybe I kind of want to find out that for myself. What would you say to those people? Well, I mean, so find out what, so, and, and look, there's no judgment here. Uh, I found out what I thought, uh, I cared about. I didn't care about. So, you know, occasionally like some guy in a, you know, really cool sports car would whiz past me. Um, we don't have a lot of guys like that in St. Louis, Missouri. So there's just not a lot of, you know, uh, Aston Martins on the road. Um, but you know, occasionally one would whiz past like, Ooh, wow, what a cool car. And then I go, Oh man, that's like $200,000. I'm never going to have one. Um, and then I thought, Oh, you know, what if I had $200,000 that I could just blow on an Aston Martin? That'd be cool. But it turns out it's not because now I've got, now I could buy one. I don't. Right. So, um, so here's my thing to people who say, yeah, yeah, you can say that because you're rich. If you compare my life from before I had stupid amounts of money to now, almost nothing has changed. I have, I literally have the same airplane. I have the same, I have a 1965 or 1966 Mooney M20. It's a $23,000 airplane. My airplane costs 23 grand. Okay. You know what? It's a good airplane. I like flying it. I know how to fly it. That's my plan. That's how I get around. Like if I can fly someplace myself, that's what I get. Okay. Now, um, uh, I live in the same neighborhood, literally same neighborhood. Haven't moved. Why? Well, I could put a big house and then, Oh wait, lose all my neighbors, you know, 
and have what, 20 acres of land or who cares? But now if you're somebody who cares, if you, if you really want that, yeah, go for it. I, it just turns out I don't care. Right. I love that. I love that. And I definitely appreciate you breaking it down. I agree with you. I mean, uh, I think oftentimes, and hey, I've been there. I mean, I'm 27. My early 20s and my late teens was all about money. And, um, you know, don't get me wrong. I'm still on the in the pursuit of making some dollars here and there. But, yeah. um, you know, uh, I, I think what you just broke down is beautiful. And I think that's exactly why I was trying to get a little bit deeper there. You know, I want to amplify that message. And I definitely appreciate the transparency. But out of total curiosity, you jokingly said the ability to sleep well at night, I'm sure through the process of Square and all your other endeavors, there were probably sleepless nights. And there were probably nights where the sleep, you know, even though you were probably getting some it might have sucked because of all the stress and things of that nature. So out of total curiosity, how do you find yourself sleeping well at night, like getting a good night's sleep? Is there meditation involved? Is there deep breathing, something of that nature? Uh, so I don't do any of that stuff. Um, I, I don't have any sort of regular rituals. I, you know, I'm not trying to sell any sort of a uh, system. Um, what I found works for me is uh, basically eliminating things that stress me out cumulatively during the day. So here's, here's something I bet none of your listeners can relate to. I've never used a Facebook product in my life. Never wow. used Instagram, never used WhatsApp, never used Facebook, not once ever. Never. Um, why? Well, I saw what it did to my friends. Like I had friends that like super early on in Facebook when, when you had to have, you know, a .edu uh, password or, or email to get on, you know, I had some friends who were all over it and I looked at them and they were spending all this time doing it and they were getting really sort of into creating this online persona and they were, and they were getting stressed out about it. And so I was like, well, you know, I'll wait a little bit. Cause I had a, a .edu password or email as well. Cause I was a teacher at, at a college. I was teaching a, I was teaching a glass blowing class, believe it or not. So I could have gotten on Facebook like in the super, super early days and I was like, ah, I think I'm going to wait here a little bit. And I watched and I was like, well, what's going on with these guys? And it was stressing them out. I was like, maybe I want to wait a little bit. And, and, and I've never seen a reason to do it. Um, so, I mean, I do have a Twitter account, but that's only because, you know, Jack's my buddy and he started Twitter. So out of support for Jack, you know, I got my own Twitter handle. Um, and and I, I should say this, there are Facebook accounts right now that use my name to promote and sell this book. So like, I will say that, but like, Anything that you hear through my social media channels, through my Instagram or Facebook is not me. Like that's a marketing firm that's just blasting out to get people to buy this book. Right, <laughs> I mean, right, right, right. So, oh, wow, so um, zero social media. I got, I got a whole list of stuff I never do. Just don't. I do. love that. that so. That's powerful. And you want to know what the most six, and I, I hate to say that word because everyone defines success in their own way, which is exactly why we kick the show off like that. But yeah. individuals that I personally deem successful based on, you know, how I construct that, you know, term, um, a lot of them aren't on social media, you know, and uh, it's powerful when you hear it because I mean, I'm over here and I can only imagine how many hours are consumed in my day, just scrolling and posting and this and that. But uh, I think that's really powerful. And I definitely appreciate that share. It's definitely a key to your success, clearly, you know, and I think that's exactly what needs to be taken away from that. So that, that that's huge. Now, Jim, I know you were raised in St. Louis. I want to know, what was your upbringing like? Who was Jim in high school? Uh, he was a geek. He was a really nerdy, skinny, 
a socially awkward kid. Um, I was a captain of the debate team, you know, <laughs> um, I sang in the chorus and, uh, basically, uh, was pretty awkward. Um, not into computers. I was not a computer nerd. Um, I, uh, came from a very good family. Uh, dad was a professor and an administrator at Washington university here in St. Louis. Um, mom stayed at home. Um, my mother was a New Yorker. She was a total firecracker. Um, so she, she had a lot of attitude. Dad was super quiet. Um, great family life. Um, simple things. Um, but what I learned actually sort of in high school, uh, because I was sort of an outsider was to sort of enjoy life as an outsider. So when I got to college, I was pretty comfortable again, not quite fitting in. Um, and then one of the things about entrepreneurship and one of the sort of central themes of this book is that entrepreneurs are weird. Okay. So I use the term entrepreneur in the innovation stack in a totally archaic way. So what does the word entrepreneur mean today? Well, Matt, it, you know, it basically means somebody who runs a business, right? So you open up a coffee right. shop, you're an entrepreneur. You, you, you know, you build, uh, you know, uh, build a construction company, you're an entrepreneur, right? That is not the original definition. The original definition of an entrepreneur is somebody who did something that was weird, that had never been done before. It was this act of sort of insanity. The name for somebody who starts a coffee shop or a lawn care company or an accounting firm or, you know, opens up a go-kart go track, they're called business people. You're a business person if you open a business, okay? So the word entrepreneur originally, and the way I use it today, means somebody who is doing something that has not been done before, okay? So I got a friend. He's, uh, he's currently buying old fighter planes from the Soviet Union. Um, and strapping uh, missiles onto them. And then he loads satellites into the missiles and he flies the things up to 70,000 feet, goes into a dive bomb, you know, gets this thing up to about Mach 2. Then he points it back up to the sky and fires off this missile. And it turns out that's a really efficient way to get a geosynchronous uh, satellite into low Earth, low Earth, low Earth orbit. Um, so it turns out, by my definition, he's an entrepreneur because nobody's ever tried that, like buying a bunch of old MiGs and shooting missiles into space to launch satellites way more cheaply than traditional, you know, rockets. Um, and there's no guarantee that it's going to work and he doesn't have any other companies that he can copy. So by my definition of entrepreneur, he's an entrepreneur. Um, I have another friend who opens coffee shops. Well, the coffee shop has been done. Like we, there is a formula. There's actually a trade show for coffee shops. Like if you don't know how to open up a coffee shop, if you know nothing about coffee shops, there are literally people who can teach you everything you don't know. And you can go learn that and then open a coffee shop. But I would call you a business person because you're way more likely to succeed opening a coffee shop because it's a known pursuit. Whereas right. my friend who's, you know, trying to get, you know, uh, afterburner parts, you know, from the, the former Soviet Union, uh, is faced a whole different set of problems. Like, you know, he's, he, he, he doesn't have any trade show that he gets to go to. Like, <laughs> you know, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So totally different thing. And, and, 
And actually, uh, Matt, that's why I wrote the book. So, so here's the thing about being an entrepreneur, and I'm only talking to the entrepreneurs now. So, um, you know, right now, like 90% of your listeners who are sort of rational business people should probably stop listening. You should probably like all turn off the button. <laughs> okay. um, so now that we're alone, okay, just the entrepreneurs. Um, <laughs> here's the deal. Entrepreneurship is different than business. Like doing something that has never been done before has a fundamentally different set of physics than doing what has been done before, okay? And you've been trained your whole life to copy. You have been schooled to copy. You are genetically wired to copy. You are really, really good at copying. And what that means is that you are really, really uncomfortable when you stop copying. But if you are going to solve a problem that's never been solved before, you don't get to copy. It's not that you don't want to, it's that you don't get to. My friend who's, you know, firing off these MIGs is, would love to have, you know, some trade show that he could go to and, and say, hey, you know, how do you keep the, you know, landing gear from burning? Yeah, I don't know what problems he's having, but like whatever his problems are, he's got to figure it out on his own. Okay. He and right. his team have to solve that problem. So here's the deal, guys. If you're an entrepreneur, if you're doing something that has never been done before, all of the physics changes. And here's why I wrote the book. Because nobody has ever explained this before. And you say, oh, there's a book on entrepreneurship. No, they aren't. They're books on business. They're books on business. Because when I started to write this thing, what I realized is I couldn't actually write the book. Like there was no way to write the book because I didn't have a word. Like I needed a word that excluded business people because I only wanted to talk about what entrepreneurship was like in its archaic definition. And, and so like, it's really weird if you read the book, like the first pair, you know, the, 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 the first chapter, I sit there and I say, okay, look, we need a new vocabulary. And the reason we need a new vocabulary is we're going to discuss this thing that's so rare that we don't even have words for it in the English language anymore. We used to. Okay. So the, the, the word entrepreneur was actually invented to describe this phenomenon. But then over the last 150 years, it's sort of been morphed. It's sort of like, um, have you ever noticed like the word express now means crappy? Like Holiday Inn Express is a crappy Holiday Inn. Like Pizza right. Hut Express <laughs> is like a shitty Pizza Hut. Like, you know what I'm talking right. about? Yeah, 100%. Like word, yeah, so the word express used to mean fast. Now it means small and crummy. Yeah. So like these words sort of get out of our control every once in a while. So we lost the word entrepreneur like 50 years ago um, and, or maybe a hundred years ago. I don't know. But if you want to talk about building a world changing company, like something that completely dominates an industry, then you're going to need to understand these concepts that, that, that I wrote the book about. Right. So let's talk about the book. Let's, yeah. let's get into that. The innovation stack, building an unbeatable business, one crazy idea at a time. Walk me through that title first and foremost. So, so the original title was First Steps Off a of Flat Earth. That was my working title when I was writing the book, um, which is what does it feel like to leave something that everybody knows is one way? And we used to, you know, humankind used to believe the earth was flat. And they were afraid to sail off the edge. Um, and then explorers started sailing and not falling off the edge. And, oh, it turns out the earth is round, right? But it totally changes your view of how life is. 
and and what's it like to be one of the first pe- persons to 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 walk to the edge of the flat earth you know you might think it's round but everybody else thinks it's flat and it's this weird feeling so i wanted to capture that weird feeling but it's a weird ass title so i scrapped it for the innovation stack which is this thing okay an innovation stack is a series of inventions that collectively create a new industry and it's it's rare it's a rare phenomenon and it's a rare phenomenon because the urge to copy is so strong that most people never actually build an innovation stack but those who do end up creating world changing businesses so that's that's how the title came about it's this thing that i describe and then i tell you how it feels to build one the how it's different from a normal business and then i go through a bunch of historical examples of these companies that are literally dominating their industries using innovation stacks and then um you know actually so i don't know if you know this but like the book was not originally a business book it was a cartoon so this was originally a graphic novel i um, didn't know that at all okay so this is yeah this is sort of a, 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 this is a funny story so i i saw this pattern and i was like oh my god like i got to write a book about this because people need to know this like people need to see this and the reason people need to see this is i want more entrepreneurs in the world I want fewer business people and more entrepreneurs, okay? And it's not that I don't want somebody to make, you know, the next drive-through restaurant. Cool, go ahead and do that. Like, that's what you want to do. You know, you want to do something that's been done before, great, do it. But what I really want is a bunch of people putting their talent-solving or their problem-solving talents on unsolved problems. I, like, I want to recruit another million entrepreneurs. And how are we going to do that if we don't know what it's like? So I wrote a book. So... That's what the book is about. But I didn't want to write a business book because business books suck. Oh, my God. They're so boring. They're just <laughs> death. Okay. And, you know, you know, try reading one of those things sometimes. They're, they're horrible. So I was like, I'm not going to write one of those. I'm going to write a graphic novel, right? Something because it turns out that the stories of entrepreneurship are awesome. They're like cities burn and people get murdered and like they're conspiracies and i mean like you know there's like i, I got stories of like you know like like they're nazis in my book like literally like because like oh you know like they're, 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 they're there's a there's an entire city that gets destroyed you know like this is great stuff this is this is this is sort of cartoon book or this you know this is pen and ink so my original draft of the book uh, was this weird hybrid of a graphic novel, you know, cartoon panels that would then, you know, go into some explanatory text and then back to a cartoon and then back to explain. And it was this really sort of schizophrenic thing, um, back and forth. And that's what I spent two years putting together. And I signed it to, uh, what I consider the best publisher in the country, Penguin Random House. Uh, right. They are the number one publisher of, 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 of business books. They publish some authors that I am totally jealous of like guys who I think are brilliant. And I was so excited when Penguin was interested. Um, and, uh, and they, they bought the book. They, and they, they, they now bought my book and they said, okay, we'll publish it. And then we had the meeting. Okay. <laughs> so after they signed the book, they sat me down and they said, uh, Jim, you know, you gotta remove those cartoons. And I was like, what? I was like, no, no, no. The cartoons are the best part of the book. And, and, no, no, no. Look, people don't 
read books these days. They use Kindles and e-readers. And your stupid cartoons are not going to work on Kindles and e-readers. And I was like, oh, I never thought of that. And it's like, oh, and do you know how many people are going to listen to this as an audiobook and never even see a physical page? Like your cartoons are not going to be a good audiobook. And I was like, oh, you're right. Oh, crap. So I, I actually rewrote the book trying to capture some of the sort of drama of a comic book, but, but it's now just a tech. Now it's just text. But here's the deal. Um, I've taken the comics and bro- broken them out into a separate comic book, which I will give you for free since I feel I'm kind of cheating the audience. Like if you buy my book, <laughs> I will give you a free copy of the comic book. You go to jimmckelvey.com. I'm sure you'll probably have links to this stuff, but go to jimmckelvey.com. And if you pre-order the book, I'll give you the comic that goes with it. And the comic, it's great. I mean, it's, it's got a burning city. It's got a murder. Uh, you know, it's got a lot of drama, you know, <laughs> I love that. guy in a cape. <laughs> like there's a guy in a cape, you know, <laughs> I love that. That's awesome. And yeah, most definitely the the links for everything will be in the show notes of this episode. I'm curious, on the topic of the book, one thing that stood out to me as I was reading it, and I, I know there's 270 plus pages in this book. I am yeah. the slowest reader on earth, um, mainly because I think I self-diagnose myself with dyslexia. I'm always effing things up every now and then, yeah. so I need to read each page twice. But one thing you mentioned in the book or Along the, along the lines of this was using complexity as a competitive advantage. And I've been taught over the course of my time that complexity is almost the um, enemy of execution. So I'm curious how you can uh, you know, use complexity as an advantage. I wanna hear this from you. So I have very strange views on complexity. Um, what, so complexity definitely is a problem and as a creator you should remove it wherever you can so um you know my book is only fifty thousand words which is really short for a book and that's because every time i rewrite it it gets shorter every time i rewrite it i lose a little bit and i've rewritten this thing now eight times okay so and every time i go through it i go oh i can say less I can say less, I can say this tighter, I can say this better, I can edit, okay? So I'm a huge believer in simplifying, simplifying, simplifying. Um, However, it turns out that an innovation stack, if you are solving an unsolved problem, is actually this relatively complex thing that evolves from a bunch of different inventions all interrelating with each other. So you're going to do one thing differently, then that's going to cause another problem, you're going to have to do something else to solve that problem. That's going to be another you know, block of the stack. And these things over time, you're going to have 10, 20, you know, 30 of these things. And that is very difficult for other companies to copy. So think about copying for a second here. Copying is the most powerful force in the universe. Okay. It's how we get things that work. Right. Like, right. You're a copy of your parents. Like, thank God you had a million predecessors in the evolutionary chain that, uh, figured out how to get T-cells to work. Because if you didn't have working T-cells, you'd be dead right now, you know? And your T-cells are pretty much like your mother's T-cells were, you know? They better be because she survived and so you survived. And if your T-cells are radically different, then there's like a one in a billion chance you'll have superpowers and a, you know, 999,999,999 chance you'll be dead, 
Okay. Right. So, uh, <laughs> so let's talk about copying as this thing that we should respect. But copying is this thing that keeps us from inventing new things. So my view on complexity is very nuanced. I believe you fight it wherever you can. But at some point, if you're going to solve a problem, you're going to do a lot of things differently. And that complexity, which is sort of an organic complexity, is extremely powerful. So you as a human are a very complex organism. You have all these different systems. They all work together. You are insanely complex. However, you're alive. Um, That's And you're durable, by the way. I could cut you and your skin will heal. I can cough on you and your T cells will eventually figure out how to fight that virus that's introduced. You know, I can create a new virus and your body can actually figure out ways to adapt to that new virus. You know, not, not all of them, but, you know, hope you're not on a, you know, cruise ship right now. But, uh, <laughs> you know, be, be aware that complexity by itself is not a bad thing, but don't embrace it for its sake, for its own sake. In other words, make it as simple as possible. Yeah, Einstein said this best. You know, make everything as simple as it can be, but no simpler. Right. That's powerful. I love that. I appreciate that breakdown. So, Jim, let me ask you this. Why at this point write this book on your journey? I mean, you kind of gave us the the working process of it all from the title to what it was really supposed to be as, you know, in regards to a graphic novel. But like, why at this point on your journey are you saying, I need to get this book out there? Is uh, it because you weren't, you know, you, you were talking about business books and you said, hey, I need to put something about entrepreneurship no. out into this world? I, I did. I had no interest in seeing myself on another spine. So I've already published two books with legit publishing houses. Um, and I have also self-published, uh, the number one textbook on glassblowing. So if you use, if, if you study glassblowing, you're probably using my textbook. Okay. So I've, I've, I've done the book thing. I did not want to write a fourth book. This is my fourth book, but I had to, I absolutely had to. And here's why. When I finally figured out what was going on with square, what I finally figured, when I finally saw this pattern, I realized that I had sort of accidentally stumbled onto this incredibly powerful thing that could solve a lot of problems in the world. Not just the ones that I can solve personally. Like I'm working on, on, on a bunch of stuff right now, um, but I'm one guy, okay? And I will never be able to do as much as a team or a large number of people. So I was like, I, was like, I see this powerful concept. And then I look to see if anyone's discussing it and nobody's talking about it. And you know, we had that, conversation about the word entrepreneur beforehand. Like one of the reasons nobody's talking about it is that we don't even have words to describe what this is. Because when, when you use the word entrepreneur out on the street, it just means business person. You say, Hey, I'm an entrepreneur. I say, I think business person. Like that's, that's what the word has meant. So, so I saw this, this thing that was wrong and which was people who are entrepreneurs, people who are potential entrepreneurs, and by entrepreneurs, I mean somebody who can solve a problem that has never been solved before. We're disqualifying themselves. And I, 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 I know this lady. She's so brilliant. She is so talented. She is, has this tremendous potential. And she talks to me occasionally about you know, what she wants to do. And then she always says, oh, I can't do that. I'm not qualified to do that. I don't know enough to do that. How, I could never do that. You know, qualification is this weird thing. You can be qualified. You can only be qualified to do something that's been done before. Okay. So right now, if I want to fly a plane, qualified pilot, I have to go get, you know, 
typerated or, you know, you know, pass tests. Like I could be qualified or not qualified to fly a plane today. But what about the Wright brothers? Nobody had ever been in the air. No human had flown before. So how, how, how were they qualified? Well, they still did it. They still got the plane in the air, you know, flew for a minute and a half. Well, that's what it's like to be an entrepreneur. You can't be qualified to be an entrepreneur. You can still do it. You just won't feel qualified. So I had to write this book because there's so many people out there who have this potential. And if they don't understand it, they will do what my friend did and they will give up. They will just say, oh, I'm just going to do something where I feel qualified. Well, okay, great. Do that and you're a business person. No judgment. You'll make a lot of money. Fine. But I think the world needs entrepreneurs. The world has so many problems. Okay. We have so much stuff going on. Like I want a million people solving problems that have not been solved before. And then I want a billion people copying their solutions, but I still need that million out there making solutions. This is what that book's about. And, and, right. and I, yeah, I couldn't see anything else doing it. So I was like, oh crap, I got to write another book. So, yeah. So if you want, if someone's listening to this, they pick up the book, what is the one thing, if they could only pick up one thing, what is that one thing you want them to learn from this or take away from it? Oh, wow. So there, there are a few themes, but I think it would be that entrepreneurship is fundamentally different than business and right. nobody is qualified. You cannot be qualified to do something new. And maybe that's not a radical thought. Maybe you're like, well, duh. And it probably should be a duh, but, but here's the part that's not duh. Okay, once you stop copying, everything changes. It's like everything that you're used to now doesn't work the way it used to work. So the way you work with totally different for an entrepreneur. The way you work with competitors, totally different from an entrepreneur. The way you fund, the way you manage, the way you recruit and retain employees, the way you, you know, all the stuff changes. Like, so if you think that having, you know, studied business or gotten an MBA or worked for 20 years in a field is your qualification to be an entrepreneur, no, it is not. And probably the greatest compliments I received to the book because you know we sort of pre-published a draft for a few reviewers i sent this to people both of whom one guy's worth a million dollars uh the other guy's worth well over 100 million super super successful people um both of them told me i wish i had read this 20 years ago and they were like where were you 20 years ago i said i was totally ignorant of this phenomenon. I hadn't seen it. I hadn't recognized it. And by the way, I built Stack without knowing what was going on. Like it, it was only in hindsight that I recognized this. Like, oh my God, that's what happened. And these, these two highly successful guys who I have deep respect for both said to me, I wish I'd had this when I was younger. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have given up. One, one guy, it was heartbreaking. He said, he said, I, I quit my last company because we were only halfway through and I didn't recognize what was happening. And I just felt, felt so uncomfortable. He's like, if I'd had your book, I would not have quit. And I was like, dude, that's heartbreaking, but that's why we need to get people to read this thing. 
Like just, right. and I don't care if you buy it, like you can steal the book. Like I'm not trying to make 20 bucks. I, I, I do not give a shit about the money. Like steal the book. Okay. Um, <laughs> hell, like. Don't and, steal and I, the book. I'll, I'll tell you anything steal the book. It. But like, you know, like you're gonna, you get like, I don't, it's, it's not about the money. It's just get, get the concept into your head. And, and here's what I really want. Understand that you probably, even if you don't choose to be an entrepreneur, know somebody who should read this thing. You, everybody knows that. And I say this with 100% certainty. Every one of you listening right now knows a person who should read this thing because you know this person with great potential, who's always questioning themselves and they're questioning themselves the contact of business. They're questioning themselves. They're saying, they're saying, I can't do this because I'm qualified to do this. Okay, well, guess what? The biggest bank in the world, okay, the biggest bank in the world was started by a guy who sold lettuce. He was a produce dealer. He never went to high school, dropped out of school at age 14. Okay? Yeah, that's powerful. Biggest bank in the world. Biggest furniture company in the world. Started by a kid who was 17 years old. Dominant furniture company on the planet today. 17-year-old started. Didn't know what the hell he was doing. Like, I... Square, okay? You know what Jack's professional credential is? Never graduated from college. Jack is a massage therapist. Really? Certified massage therapist. You know what my professional credential is? Glass blower. You know, I mean, I've got a college degree, but like, who cares? You know, um, uh, by definition, are not qualified. And somehow we were able to do these things. So every one of your listeners knows somebody like that. And get them a copy of the book. Get that person to read the first couple chapters and see if it doesn't feel strangely familiar. As I walk through it, and 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 look, I got kids now, so um, one thing you learn about being a parent is your kids ignore everything you say, right? Your kids are super powerful at ignoring parental advice. That's what kids do, right? Oh, mom. Oh, dad. You know, they're just, so as I was writing this, I was like, maybe just maybe my son or my daughter is got this book 15 years from now and I'll be able to tell them something they wouldn't, they wouldn't listen to their old man, you know, but they might at some point read my book and get this little message. Cause I'll tell you, like, if you understand how much potential there is to great things, even though you're not qualified, that's the central message that I'd love to get out. Yeah, that's powerful, man. I definitely think you hit the nail on the head as to why this is a must read. Um, so I'm grateful for that and being able to amplify that even more. But Jim, you mentioned before we even started recording this, that you were doing a podcast before. I'm sure you have a bunch more lined up and you've done a bunch of media and press and things of that nature in the past. So what's a question you wish more people would ask you and how would you answer it? Oh, question I wish more people would ask is, um, uh, is, is why the book has the tone that it does. So when you read the book, like it is completely irreverent. Like it is completely, uh, I, I try to be, there's a super dirty joke in the book. Okay. Like, I, I don't know if you caught it yet. Uh, I don't know how far you read or if you, if you, if you caught it, but the, the book, like I did not want to write a business book. And so it's, it's borderline. Well, it, it's, 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 
it's, it, I, I tried to walk right up to the line, but I was writing, I was writing this one paragraph and I came up with this filthy joke and I wrote it and, and I laughed out loud. You're not supposed to laugh at your own jokes, but I actually laughed at this one. And then I wrote it. And, and then I wrote, like I was, I wrote it and I was on an airplane. I started laughing, you know, just like an idiot on an airplane, just middle seat, laughing my head off. And then I, I like, I erased it because I was afraid like the guy next to me would read what I just written. <laughs> and then I was like, Oh God, you know? So I erased it. And then I thought, no, no, you know, like my editor, so I had an editor at Penguin at this point. And, uh, uh, I thought, Oh, my editor's really going to have fun. Like deleting this. Cause you know, like editors like to chop stuff out. Like, so I was like, oh, I'll leave this in and let him have the fun of like chopping it out. So I left it in and he missed it. He missed the joke. He didn't get the joke. It went right over his head. Whizzing by. And I told told him about it. He's like, you have to tell me where it is. I was like, no, I don't. Uh (laughs) So we had this little standoff. And then, um, uh, so he never caught it and, and it survived. Like the joke made it in the final final cut. Like it's in there. It's it's ridiculous. I, I mean, I, I'm embarrassed. <laughs> like like on the audio book. Like if you listen to me read the audio book, like there's a part where I'm repressing laughter. Like in the read back. I, I don't know if you. I don't know if I don't know if they're gonna catch that in the studio or not. But they, like literally, I'm trying to repress my laughter. Like I can't believe they let me put this in the book. But like it is an irreverent book. And 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 the reason for that. So the reason the tone of the book is this is 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 two things. One. God, I am sympathetic for the readers of business books. Most of these things are dry as old toast. They are just, you know, and I didn't want to write one of that, which is why it was originally a cartoon to begin with. But, but secondly is look, a lot of the times, even the most successful entrepreneurs don't know what we're doing. You don't know how it's going to, and I will, raise my hand and admit fully. Most of the stuff that for me has been successful in the process, I've been confused and scared and, 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 and having a sense of humor during that time is one of the greatest powers you can have. It's not having an iron will. It's not having, you know, meditation. I mean, look, meditation works for you. Great. That's, that's fantastic. Whatever drugs you're on, Keep using them. You know, like double the dough. I don't care. Like, but but for me, humor, like just the ability to go in and go, wow, that didn't work. Look at that crater. Or hmm, you know, it's gonna take a, you know, take a couple weeks for the skin to grow back over that, you know, scar. Like, like you, you better have a sense of humor. You don't have to, but like it's my form. Like, and so so I wanted to convey uh how fun it can be to do something that you're not qualified to do that everybody calls you crazy and might not work. And let's capture some of the fun. So that's, that's the thing that I wish most people would, would ask me is like, why, why is why does this thing read differently than all the other, you know, sort of serious books? Um, the answer is, Look, you can be serious and still have a sense of humor. Like you can be doing something really, really important for the world and still crack up about it. So why not have reading? Right. Yeah, it's powerful, man. I mean, I, I've definitely 
and, and Jim, I say this fully transparently, there have been times in my life I was way too serious. And that those were the times where all I cared about was money. And, you know, over the course of life transitioning me through my journey, I, I've definitely came to see exactly what you're talking about, finding the fun in things. And uh, I'm glad that this is what the, the tone of the book is. And I'm glad, uh, you know, I, I have to admit also, I definitely let that dirty joke go over my head. So now I'm going to have to circle back. Maybe oh, I didn't get to it yet. Maybe, <laughs> okay. maybe, maybe yes. I didn't get to it yet, but I, I'm going to have to circle back regardless because like you, some, you've alluded to some, multiple times. Some people get it. They look at me, you know, they get that. I don't know. Yeah. Like, to me, I was like, there's no way they'll publish this. And, uh, you know, but I got a, I got a twisted, I got a twisted brain. <laughs> I love yeah. it. I love it. So Jim, let me ask you a personal question. This is going to sound a little cliche, but I'm going to reverse okay. engineer it after I ask this. Okay. What's the best piece of advice you've received? Uh, don't do list. So, um, so I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm okay. So yes, personal question. I'm giving you a deeply personal answer. Um, my father just died. He was the, man who I respected most in the world. He died, he was 94 years old, and we had his funeral about three weeks ago. And I had to get a eulogy at my father's funeral, which is really tough to do. But my right. father was an educator. He taught in a university for 50 years. And I thought, oh, well, I've learned so much from my father that I will share some at his funeral. And when I went to write the eulogy, I realized only then, only then, that he had never once in 54 years given me any advice. He was a brilliant man. He had a PhD. He had a, I mean, he was, he was, he was revered and uh, you know, one of the foremost scientists on uh, polymer processing, uh, built Washington University's engineering school, which is now named in his honor. It's now called the James McKelvey School of Engineering um, for my dad. He never gave me any advice. Never once, never once. He didn't sit there and said, Jim, here's how you handle that. Jimmy, come here, do this. Jimmy, like he, ne he never told me any advice. So I will, I will give you a piece of advice that I got that is, I thought, a, a nice little trick, okay? But I'm also going to tell, I'm going to turn your question around. The person who I've learned more, most from by just living around for most of my life never once offered advice. So now here's some advice. Um, I was at a conference. This was 20 years ago uh, with a guy named Jim Collins. He wrote a book called Good to Great. Okay. Right. So Collins was in the process of writing Good to Great. And he actually gave me a draft of Good to Great. I, I had one of the pre-release versions of Good to Great. I never, I never actually read the, the published version. I read the pre-published version that Jim gave me. But we were sitting there together at a conference. And uh, I mean, he was a total badass even back then. This is before he got super famous. But he gave me some advice that I think he got from Cork uh, Walgreen. And he said, create a don't-do list. He said, make a... Because what, what people tend to do is we tend to put things on a list of things that we're going to do. A to-do list, essentially, right? we're not going to do that allow us to do things. Yeah, a do list, right. a to-do list. But a right. don't-do list is a list of things that you shouldn't do or don't want to do uh, or are not good at. You know, they're, they're time wasters. So I put social media on my don't-do list. Like, I don't do social media. Um, I have a don't-do list. I don't listen to news. You know, news is depressing. And I, I filter it through very, you know... 
special sources. I've got a couple of sources, so I know kind of what's going on in the world, but like daily news, like you asked me what happened yesterday with a campaign or what Trump tweeted, or I don't know any of that. Stresses me out. Can't do anything about it. I don't know. Um, I have a I have a list of about 20 things that I don't do ever. Um, and that advice has been life-changing because the don't do list creates space. So I have this tremendous resource of extra time. You know, most people have, you know, when they're not scheduled, you know, I have three hours when I'm not scheduled. I have a week when I'm not scheduled. I have, you know, I have massive amounts of time that give me the ability to purposely fill that time with, with other stuff. But the trick is to, the trick is to constantly empty. It's, you know, it's constantly throw stuff out. Um, and at that don't do list, which I got Jim Collins for, um, was a great piece of advice. So there you go. Yeah, I love that. I love that. I mean, we always hear to keep a to-do list and, you know, use the four quadrants to delegate work, but I've never heard create a four quadrants what the hell's that (laughs) this is this little thing on the internet it's like four quadrants uh and like in the upper left corner is like urgent important and all that other crap right right right. give me that oh i'm sorry (laughs) i'm not poo-pooing the four quadrants but uh you know right 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 that sounds like that should be in a that sounds like that should be in a business book that sounds sounds like there's a business book around that one i hear you i hear you so jim i want to respect your time i got one last question for you if you could only give if you could only give one universal piece of advice for the rest of your life what would you give people so that's different from the question a universal piece of advice. So it's actually very different. I want to respect your time. I, I, I could no, talk no, to no. you for days, no, but uh, I'll, I'll try to be thoughtful about it because I don't want to just give some flippant answer. Right, and I respect it. Would be this do a little bit of something that makes you uncomfortable. So be get in a conversation with somebody you disagree with. Okay. Somebody who's intelligent, not somebody who's an idiot who you think, oh, he's an idiot, he's stupid and wrong. But somebody who is really informed and thoughtful and just has a totally different worldview. Or do something that makes you a little bit scared. Um, like public speaking, or you know, go, you know, do do something that where your hands sweat a little bit. Do I'm not saying you know go be a bold adventurer or anything like that. I'm just saying like get a little familiar with what the edges of your comfort is. Get a little bit, just a little bit uncomfortable. Not on you know not as some sort of stoic exercise of you know uh, self fulfillment or anything like that. Don't make a big deal of it. You know, once the once in a while, um, accept an invitation to something you know you're not going to like or eat that food that's disgusting. Um, I learned to like beets in my 40s. Like, I thought beets were disgusting. These things that just, God, beets were just horrible. And then, you know, somewhere around 40, I tried a beet. I was like, eh, I think it's pretty good. 
It just needed salt, you know, like, uh, <laughs> like you can do this. And I, I'm not saying it has to be this big sort of harangue, but I think if I had to give a universal piece of advice to everybody, um, it's, it's, it's simply that, you know, do a little bit that makes you uncomfortable. And over time, you'll find that that may have really interesting effects. Now, very quickly, what's the why behind that? Why should they be doing something that makes them a little bit uncomfortable? Oh, the why is because it expands your ability. Uh, it, so two, two things, two things. The first is that it actually expands your universe, okay? So I now have friends who I'm in violent political disagreement with, okay? Uh, I now have food items that I can eat that I thought were formerly sort of purple and disgusting. Um, <laughs> I, I, I now have, I, I, it, it makes your world a bigger place, okay? So that's benefit one, okay? But benefit two is even more appropriate, and this kind of is a great way to tie back to the book and why my message to entrepreneurs, you know, the people who've done what has never been done. The ability to function when you are uncomfortable is a critical skill if you're an entrepreneur. Now, if you're not an entrepreneur, you can kind of get away with not having it because you can just copy what everybody else is doing and you can get comfortable in a crowd uh, of other people that are getting, you know, you, you, can, you can go take a, take a course with a bunch of other people who, you know, are learning to do the thing. But if you're an entrepreneur, you don't, there's no course, okay? You're out there alone. You, you get no validation and you are going to feel uncomfortable. Right. And there are two things you can do. You can quit or you can continue. And every atom in your body is going to be telling you to quit, okay? And it is really hard, even if you know what's going on, to continue. But if you know what's going on, if you have... If you have cultivated this discipline of functioning, even when you are uncomfortable, that skill, which, and I describe sort of exercises in the book on how I do this stuff and how others have done this. But like, if you have that skill and you can function, even though you're in discomfort, and that is the thing that will keep you going because when you're solving an unsolved problem that nobody on the planet has ever figured out before, there are so many setbacks. There's so much negative stuff that you will almost certainly be uncomfortable. And the entrepreneurs that I talked to and met in researching the book and researched, you know, these are guys who were, you know, sometimes literally crying. They admit they were crying. Um, uh, at some points. And, and I admit to having panic attacks. I was literally thought I was having a heart attack when we started to swear. I was so wound up about stuff. But, you know, even with that high level of stress, if you can keep going, you have a chance uh, to unlock tremendous potential. And so that's the second benefit. So I think that's, you know, those are two sort of meaningful benefits from what can be, yeah, sort of a, interesting habit. Yeah, Jim, listen, I, I couldn't agree more. Those are huge. I appreciate all the value that you've been bringing to the show and through the book as well. I'm really glad we're able to amplify this. So I just want to express my gratitude one last time for you hopping on here. 
Hey, man, it's been a total pleasure, man. You ask great questions. This was fun. I appreciate it, Jim. Ladies and gentlemen, there it is from Jim McKelvey himself. Now, first and foremost, Jim is not on social. You can find him on Twitter, but like he said during this episode, social is on his not to-do list versus his to-do list. So I can't tell you to connect with him any other way than by getting his brand new book, which is something that I read, something that I highly, highly suggest you check out nonetheless. You can find the link to grab a copy yourself in the show notes of this episode. On top of that, you could reach out to our partner, If you are looking to grow your team in any way, shape, or form, whether you're a small business owner, a medium-sized business, you're in the Fortune 500 Club, wherever you are, if you're looking to grow your marketing efforts, hire a remote marketing intern through Acadium. And on top of that, listen, if you enjoyed this episode, if you found pleasure in listening to this, I'm going to ask you to make sure you're sharing this with people in your circle. As Jim mentioned, share the book on top of it. He doesn't care if you steal the book, but I do. I do not want anyone getting in trouble. But with that said, I really, really would love if you shared this episode episode with someone that could hear it or use it. Trust me, there's a lot of valuable insights within it, as you now know, as you're at the end of it. On top of that, leaving a rating and review if you have yet to done so, that would mean the absolute world to us. Until next time, everyone, be blessed. Peace.